Hey, this morning we're wrapping up our worship playlist series. Have you guys enjoyed this format, like on Sunday mornings over the last few weeks? I really have. It's been a lot of fun. Totally different than how we typically do our messages, but I've enjoyed it, and I'm glad to hear that you have too. Now, for the final message in this series, we're spotlighting this song. It's called Available by Elevation Worship from their 2020 album, Graves into Gardens. It's a great one from start to finish. Now, rather than starting with the song today, I actually want to start with the scriptural story that inspired the song. So we're going to talk about the Bible for quite a long time, and then at the end, we're going to wrap these two things together, the lyrics and the verses. We're going to show you how they fit together really well. So the story that I want to focus on is found in Isaiah chapter number six. It begins in verse number one, in which the prophet Isaiah writes this. It was in the year King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. All right, now, that's a strong opening line to a story. You with me? Like, Isaiah knows how to grab our attention. When you read that, you're like, I'm sorry, did you just say you saw God, like, with your own eyes? Now, my question for you is, as we read these first two sentences, what interests you the most? What grabs your attention? What do you want to hear more about in this opening verse? Is it the year that this happened or the fact that Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up in his temple? Which one seems more interesting to you? Yeah, the Lord, obviously, okay? It's like, I don't care when it happened. Tell me what happened, bro. What was God like? I want to know because this is mind-blowing, right? However, you can't actually understand the vision that God is about to give us of, uh, that Isaiah is about to give us of God unless you understand why uh, Isaiah points out that this happened in the year that King Uzziah died. This, this little line at the very beginning of this passage is critical to understanding everything that's going to happen. So who was this Uzziah cat? Who was he? Well, it turns out that he was a king over the southern nation of Judah. There was a point in Israel's history where they had a civil war. This is after the days of David and Solomon, and uh, they had a civil war. The country was divided in half. There was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, and Uzziah was the 10th in a long line of kings that reigned over the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, some of those kings in Judah were good. Many of them, in fact, most of them were not so good. Turns out Isaiah was one of the good kings, though. He was one of the good guys. And he ruled the country of Judah for 52 years. Like, that's a long reign, you guys. I mean, he still had, he doesn't have anything on Queen Elizabeth, but like, he really, he was around for a long time. And so what ended up happening is that over time, the Israelites began to associate the wealth and prosperity of their day with the fact that Uzziah was their king. He, he really, he strengthened the country. They had a lot of economic advantage during that time. Everybody seemed to be living well off. There weren't like major um, plagues and wars and things like that. And so over time, the Israelites began to think to themselves, well, as long as we have a good king like Uzziah on the throne, everything's going to be okay. God's going to bless us with his favor. All right. However, what we read in a parallel telling of Uzziah's story found in 2 Chronicles chapter 26 is this. Uh, 2 Chronicles 26, 16 says, But when Uzziah became powerful, he became proud, which led to his downfall. He sinned against the Lord his God by entering the sanctuary of the Lord's temple and personally burning incense at the altar of the temple. Now, we read this and we're like, Okay, why was that such a big deal? I don't get it. But an ancient Jew reading this would have been like, I'm, I'm sorry, he did what? 
He did what? See, burning incense inside of the temple was a job that was exclusively reserved for the priests. Nobody else would ever think that they had the right to go in and do it. Even the king himself was prevented from doing this. So when Uzziah has all of this prosperity and his entire country is looking at him like, you the man, thank you for being so amazing. Uzziah gets puffed up in pride, the Bible tells us. And he says to himself, you know what? If I wanna go in and offer some incense to the Lord, I'm gonna do it. Who's gonna stop me anyway? This was a massive transgression. So he lights the incense in the altar, the priests, there are about 80 of them in the temple at the time, they hear what's going on and they rush into the holy place and they confront King Uzziah. And they're like, bro, you know you're not supposed to do this. This is really, really bad. You need to get out of here like right now. The Bible tells us in 2 Chronicles 26 that Uzziah flies into a rage. He's like, how dare you challenge my authority? You're nothing but a bunch of priests. I'm the king. I've been doing this for decades, you guys. You have no right to talk to me like this. In fact, the text actually hints that he is willing to physically or violently attack the priests in the middle of the holy place of the temple because they dared confront him. So we've got this standoff between the powerful King Uzziah and then we've got 80 priests and I don't know, it just seems like there is the potential for this to go really badly. In that moment, God intervenes. And the Bible tells us that because of Uzziah's pride and because of his transgression, the Lord strikes him immediately in the holy place with leprosy. So when he gets hit with leprosy, he is immediately uh, escorted out of the temple and the Bible tells us that he lives out the rest of his life with this skin disease. Now, if you understand the, the purity laws in the Old Testament, if you had leprosy, you were never allowed to come back into the temple again. King Uzziah went the rest of his life without ever setting foot on the temple grounds. And because the Israelites wanted to protect anyone else from catching the same disease, the Bible tells us that he lived out the remainder of his years as a shut-in in a house near the palace. He never went back to the palace. He never sat on the throne again. And eventually he ended up dying from his disease. All right. Now that's a long story about a guy who's only mentioned once here in this passage. But I told you understanding why Isaiah anchors the, the death of King Uzziah as being like the catalyst or the thing that needed to happen so that he could see God, get a vision of God is really, really important. In fact, we could put it this way. King uh, Uzziah had to be removed from his earthly throne before Isaiah could see God on his heavenly throne. Are you with me? He had to like, God actually had to remove this man because up until this point, the Israelites and Isaiah is included. They were looking at King Uzziah as their savior, as their provider. We might say that they had begun to idolize this man. They had begun to look to him, their earthly king, to give them what only their heavenly king could actually provide. And so he says, this all happened in the year that King Uzziah died. The reason he writes that down is not to just tell you, okay, so this is the calendar year in which this happened. It is so that you will understand that Uzziah had to be removed from his earthly throne before Isaiah could see God on his heavenly throne. Now I wonder, is there anyone or anything on the throne in your life that's presenting you from seeing God? Is there a relationship or an addiction or a lie 
that you've been buying into and it is blocking you from seeing God in the same way that the Israelites were blocked by a good king named Uzziah from seeing Yahweh on his throne. The band's going to lead us in the next section of this song available and I want you to consider who's really on the throne in your life. Here I am that he caught a vision of God, he tells us what the vision contained. He says in verse number two, attending him, God, were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. Now, seraphim are angels. It's a type of angel, and apparently angels have six wings, you guys. He says, with two wings, they covered their faces. With two wings, they covered their feet. And with two wings, they flew. They were calling out to each other, holy, holy, Holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Their voice shook the temple to its foundations, and the entire building was filled with smoke. So surrounding God's throne in the temple are angels who fly around day and night crying out, Holy, holy, holy. This is super interesting because the Bible actually uses a ton of adjectives to describe God, right? Like you start in Genesis, you go all the way through to Revelation 22, and we see that God is consistently called loving. God is consistently called merciful. God is called just or righteous. God is called our provider. He's called omniscient and omnipotent. There are all of these words that are used to describe God in the Bible. But do you know the most important and the one that is most often ascribed to God is holy? The Bible says God is holy more than anything else, more than any other adjective or descriptor. The Bible says God is holy, but holy is kind of a weird word to us, isn't it? Like, isn't it a bit strange? We, we are like, maybe I could kind of, I, I have a vague sense of what holy means, but I don't know. We don't use it a whole lot in English, and uh, I, I'm not sure if any of us have a strong grasp on it. However, in Hebrew and to the original audience, this idea of God being holy, it would have made complete sense. It was actually pretty straightforward. See, the word holy in English is actually translated, I'll put it here on the screen for you. It's actually translated from a Hebrew word called kadesh. That's the word that's translated as holy. And it literally means to cut 
and to separate. It means to set apart. It means to be used for a distinct or very special purpose. So holy simply means that whatever is described as holy is cut and set apart for some sort of distinct use or purpose. So when the Bible speaks of God being holy, there is a lot that is included in that word, but the primary meaning behind it is that you guys, God is other. He is something different than anything else that we might be familiar with. When it says that God is separate, it means he is separate from his creation. You realize that if everything in the universe were to fall and fail today, God would still exist. He's separate from his creation. He's not contingent on his creation. What that means is God really has no parallel inside of creation. Do you understand that? There's nothing that you're familiar with that will actually help you to understand God. Not really. Man, the Bible authors have tried. They've tried to compare God to a father. They've tried to compare him to a general. They've tried to compare him to all sorts of different things. But in reality, God is something entirely different. And when we encounter him, if we ever encounter him, he is going to feel very foreign, very strange, and really overwhelming because he is separate. He is holy from his creation. But you know what? It also means that God is separate from the sin of humanity. God does not have any sin inside of him. We can't, we can't um, interact with one another without the effects of our sinfulness, the effects of the fall, coloring what we say and do, how we relate and see one another, how we treat one another, all of that. And in fact, it actually colors our view of God as well. But God is not infected with any of our sinfulness. He is holy. He is perfect. There is no like defect or lack inside of him. He'll never do the wrong thing. He'll never do you wrong. There are tons of people in your life that will do you wrong, but God will not. Why? Because he is separate from all of the shortcomings that people have. He is majestic and infinite and perfect in a way that our brains cannot really understand. The Bible says he is holy. Not just that. The angels say he is holy, holy, holy. Why are they repeating it three times? Well, in English, if we want to emphasize something, we use a, a phrase or a word called a superlative. You familiar with that? Maybe from grammar back in school. So we might say, yeah, that girl's hot. Her friend is hotter, but my wife is the hottest, y'all, okay? So you see, that was well played, right? Um, so you see, if we want to emphasize something, if we want to show degrees or quality of something, we change the word, hot, hotter, hottest. But in Hebrew, they didn't do it that way. They would just repeat the same word. And every time they repeat the same word, they're multiplying the meaning. They are emphasizing it again and again and again. Don't miss this. God is holy. He is separate. He's distinct. He's not what we think of him. He's bigger than all of our theologies and all of our doctrines and all of our imaginations. If we were to encounter him the way that Isaiah does, it would be like mind-blowing, you guys. We wouldn't be able to process what it is that we're seeing. Now, what's super interesting to me here, okay, is that the Bible uses all of these descriptions to, to kind of characterize God, but the only one that's repeated three times in a row like this, is holy. So the Bible never says God is love, love, love. In 1 John, it says God is love. It does say that, but he doesn't say love, love, love. 
He doesn't say, God is wrath, wrath, wrath. You need to get right, turn or burn. He doesn't say that. The only word that's repeated three times is holy. In theological circles, we call this the trihagion, the three holies of God. And it is literally the Bible's way of saying the most important quality and characteristic of God is his holiness, his separateness, his otherness from what we tend to think he is and our own shortcomings and sinfulness. God is kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. So I want you to catch what's going on here, okay? Isaiah's idol dies, and in that moment of despair, he gets a clear picture of who God is, his holiness, his grandeur, his majesty and awesomeness. So how does uh, Isaiah respond when he gets this picture of God? Let's put it here, verse number five. Look at what Isaiah says. He says, oh, that's my God? Dope. High five, Yahweh. I'm glad you're on my team. No. What he actually says is, it's all over. I'm doomed. I have filthy lips, and I live among a people that have filthy lips, for I've seen the king, the Lord of heaven's armies. Okay. Isaiah kind of freaks out here a little bit, right? But he's not just being dramatic. You have to understand, every time somebody encounters God in the Bible, this is the reaction that they have. Okay, now, so like, I know that you like to watch YouTube videos about people who say they went to heaven, or you like to go to the Christian bookstore and buy your books about little kids that went to heaven, and then they came home, and I know that typically what people say is, boy, when I got to go to heaven, I was just bathed in this warm glow, this white light. It was like the best hot tub you could ever imagine. It was like just, just the most perfect love. It was Oh, it was wonderful. I wish you guys could manifest this here on earth. I wish you could experience it, right? Okay. Or you get them in like, man, it was so cool up there. I was playing football with Jesus. You guys, we had so much fun in heaven. I can't wait to go back because it's a big, big house with lots and lots of room where we can play football. Some of y'all get it. Anyway, I'm serious now. When we, when we encounter people in our world who say, oh, I saw God, it was like, High five, I love you, BFFs, Jesus is my homeboy sort of thing. But listen, every time somebody encounters God in the Bible, they are undone. That's the literal meaning of what Isaiah he says here. He doesn't say I'm doomed. He, <clears throat> he says I'm undone. He says I am broken down. There is nothing left in me. I don't have an ounce of pride left in me when I see God face to face. I used to think I was something. Now I realize I am nothing in God's presence. This happens again and again and again. So Job, very famous character from the Bible, right? He's having a conversation with God in chapter 42 of his book. And I want you to listen to what he says here in this passage. Uh, Job is, is speaking to God and he says, my ears have heard of you in the past, but now God, my eyes see you. So he gets a clear picture of God. How does he respond? He says, therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. One morning in the New Testament, Jesus is hanging out with Peter, and uh, Peter had been fishing all night. He hadn't caught a single thing. It was a very frustrating night for him. So that morning, Jesus is like, hey, let's go out and go fishing. And Peter's like, no, Jesus, you don't get it. Fishing's bad today. No point. We're not going to catch anything. And he's like, can we just go fishing, please? So Peter's like, all right, you're the Lord, I guess. So we'll get in the boat. They go out, and of course, Jesus works a miracle, and Peter draws in so many fish the first time he casts his net into the water that the nets begin to break. 
So how does Peter respond? Does he look at his Lord and Savior and be like, nice haul, thanks, Jay. This is good, man. You want to become a partner in my fishing business? We can make some cash, bro. We could do that. No. When Jesus shows up and works this unbelievable miracle, revealing his deity to Peter, Peter responds by saying, just leave me, Lord. I'm such a sinful man. Why does everybody respond this way in the Bible when they see God? Why does everybody respond with feeling small and scared and a little uncertain about whether or not God is actually even safe to be around? I think the answer is that the more clearly I see God, the more clearly I see myself. Do you understand this? You will never adequately and accurately see yourself until you see you the way God sees you. You see yourself the way God sees you, it'll start combating all the lies that you've been believing, the things that the world has told you about yourself that are not true, that you're not good enough, that you're ugly, that you're unlovable, and on the flip side, that you're amazing, and there's nothing wrong with you, and you're a wonder, you don't need a savior, you just do you, baby. Like, the, the, rea- the picture of God When we see him clearly, we see ourselves clearly in response. That sounds like a good thing, but in light of God's righteousness, our sinfulness becomes glaringly obvious. If I got a clear picture of God, who is a morally perfect being, you better believe that my faults and failings are going to be magnified. I'm going to be very aware of how imperfect I actually am. When I see God's generosity, all I can do is compare that to just how selfish I apparently am. Can I say this is why so many people reject a relationship with God? Because in order to have a relationship with God, you have to see him clearly, which will cause you to see yourself clearly. And most people, they don't want to deal with that part of themselves. They're like, you know what? I, I, nah, I don't want to go there. No. And so they reject a relationship with God. They will not see him clearly, and as a consequence, they won't see themselves, okay? So Isaiah is in God's presence. He's completely undone by God's holiness, his separateness, his otherness, his perfection, his beauty, his majesty. He is like, there is no hope. I am doomed. And I got to say, if the story ended right there, then the message would be, God's awesome, you're awful, so try not to suck so much, okay? Thankfully, the story doesn't end here for Isaiah or for us. So the band's going to come and lead us in the final section of Available, and then I'll tie these passages together with the lyrics. For the one who gave me life, nothing is a sacrifice. Oh, use me how you want to. Yes, Lord. 
Isaiah catches this glimpse of God, he becomes aware of his own sinfulness and he loses all hope. I mean, after all, to tie this back to what he mentioned in the beginning, God had judged severely King Uzziah for sinning in his presence, didn't he, right? And so Isaiah's like, okay, if Uzziah did the wrong thing in the earthly temple, and I know that I'm a person of unclean lips, what's about to happen to me for being in God's presence in the heavenly temple? He is sure that he is about to be completely judged, maybe even wiped out of existence. However, we read in verse number six, then one of the seraphim, one of the angels, flew to me with a burning coal he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. He touched my lips with it and said, see, this coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed and your sins are forgiven. Isaiah finds himself laid bare in the throne room. He's particularly concerned. We read about his unclean lips. Remember, he was like, oh my gosh, I have unclean lips and I live among a people that have unclean lips. Now, what you have to understand here is Isaiah is not lamenting like F-bombs in your mama jokes, okay? He's not like, oh, I probably said some naughty things. No, 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 no. What he's saying is, I recognize now that for 52 plus years, we've been walking around acting like the earthly king is all we need. We've been acting like he's the one that's provided for us and taken care of us and given us all of our blessings. And I realize now how wrong we've been, how falsely we've spoken. What a wicked and awful thing it is to rob glory from God and give it to someone or something else. He says, I am terrified because I'm a person and we are a people of unclean lips. But what's amazing here is the angel flies over, touches his mouth with a hot coal. See, God already has an answer for the thing that Isaiah is most worried about. He already has a plan. He's already got it taken care of. Isaiah's like, oh, I know what I've said. Oh, if God knows what I said and he's God, so he probably does. I'm in deep trouble. God's like, I got it. I got it. I'm holy and separate. I won't and can't tolerate your sin, but I have a plan to remove your guilt and to forgive your sins. This story follows the same thing we see throughout the entire Bible, right? People worship something other than God. He reveals himself to them, and that exposes their sinfulness. They're in a desperate state. They know that if, if God makes them give account or to pay for their own mistakes, sins, and rebellions, they're in trouble. But because of his great love, God intervenes. He rescues people. He pays for their sins on their behalf. This is what we see in Isaiah. Hey, it's no coincidence that this is exactly what we see in the New Testament with Christ as well. The fact that Isaiah was, his sin was purged freely through an act of God is no different than the fact that all of our sin is purged freely through an act of God, through the death of Jesus on the cross. In fact, if you look here in Isaiah 6, he says, your sins are forgiven. What did Jesus say again and again and again when he healed somebody? Your sins are forgiven. It's the exact same phrase that's used dozens of times throughout the gospel. Now, one thing that's worth noting here is that Isaiah had to go through the purification ritual himself. He actually had to be purified for his own sins. The angel grabbed, like it must have hurt. It must have been really uncomfortable for the angel to grab a burning coal off the heavenly altar and put it in Isaiah's mouth. You ever eaten a frozen pizza fresh out of the oven and just, just destroyed the inside of your mouth? Okay, now you know how Isaiah was feeling. No, I'm kidding. This is like on a whole other level, okay? This was not pleasant. This was not comfortable. 
This was a very difficult thing for Isaiah to have to endure. He had to be purified himself through the ritual. But the good news is, in the New Testament, we don't have to endure the purification ritual. I don't have to pay for my sins on a cross. There's someone who's already done it for me. I don't have to answer for my mistakes. There is somebody who has stepped in on my behalf. Look at what the scripture says here. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. It says, the blood of Jesus, God's son, what does it do? It purifies us from all our sin. Our guilt is removed. Our sins are forgiven. Jesus was judged in my place. He did it because he loved me, because God is holy, but God is also merciful. And so we see in Isaiah how this glimpse of a holy God, but his willingness to intervene in order to save and redeem people is literally just one small piece of a pattern that is meant to point us towards Jesus. So, you know, to end our service this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to take communion together. I'm so excited about this. It's always one of my favorite Sundays. It's a very special moment. I believe when you came in, you should have received some communion elements. Yes? And if you haven't, we're going to have you throw up your hand real quick, and we're going to get you some communion elements. That includes me. I didn't get any. And uh, it's going to be hard for me to lead in communion if I don't get some uh, communion elements. Thank you. So we see two elements here this morning. We see the bread, unleavened bread. There's no yeast. It's basically a cracker. We see a piece of bread. And Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, gathered together with his disciples. And he took bread just like this, and he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples. And this is what he told them. He said, when you eat this, it represents my body, which is broken for your healing. It is given so that you can be forgiven. Jesus' death on the cross is what allows us to have a relationship with God, to see him clearly and to see ourselves clearly. I don't know if God is ever going to give you a heavenly vision like he did Isaiah. Probably not. But here's what I can tell you. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. He said about himself, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He said about himself, I and the Father are one. And so you don't have to have this miraculous vision. You don't have to have a heavenly coal placed in your mouth. All you have to do today is to take this piece of bread and to take it in recognition and gratitude of the one who gave his body to be broken on our behalf. Jesus, we thank you and bless you for giving your body so that we could be made spiritually whole and healed. God, I pray that not a single person that's here today who has received you into their life and is participating in this ceremony, I pray, God, that not a single one of them would live a day in which they believe that they are still spiritually dead, that they are spiritually sick, or that, God, they are separated from you. You're separate from us and our sin, but you are actually willing to come get us and to make us holy through the gift, the death, the resurrection of your son, Jesus. So again, we say thank you and bless you, God, 
for the one who gave his life for us. After Jesus had given the bread to his disciples, the scripture tells us that he took a cup of wine. Uh, Sorry to disappoint, it's just grape juice today, but he took a cup of wine and he said in the same way that the bread represents my body, which is broken for your healing. He says, when you drink this juice, this fruit of the vine, it represents my blood, which is given as the payment for your sins. It is given so that any mistake you've ever made, literally anything you've ever done wrong to someone or to God himself, or even to your own self, any sin that we have ever committed, Jesus says, my blood is sufficient to cover it, to forgive it, and to remove all guilt, just as the passage told us this morning. And so then he invited his disciples to drink in recognition, remembrance, and celebration of God's amazing gift of forgiveness. Jesus, today, we say thank you for your death, for shedding your blood so that our sins could be forgiven. We know that the New Testament tells us that your blood is the seal on the new covenant. That God, we don't have to relate to God through our sinfulness anymore, but that God, because of your holiness and mercy, working together in, cons- in, in concert with one another, that Lord, we have been made right when we were not right. We have been brought into your presence when we were cut and separate from you. And so we say thank you for this unspeakable gift. And God, may it be the foundation that we live from every single day, knowing that we are accepted by your mercy and your grace. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I haven't really engaged much with the lyrics of the song today. I, you might be wondering, like, yeah, we're only talking about the song. Um, and that's because I wanted to save it here till the end. The last thing that Isaiah says in this passage is going to tie everything together. You'll read here in verse number eight, the, the scripture says, then. Okay, so then, that then is really important. This is after God has revealed him. So King Uzziah has died. The idol has been taken away. Now he's able to see God clearly. In that moment, he feels broken down and undone and unworthy. He feels doomed. And God says, you're not doomed. I'm going to take care of this for you. Then, then, I heard the Lord asking, whom shall I send as a messenger to this people? Who needs to know that the king is still on the throne? Who needs to know that Uzziah was never the one taking care of y'all in the first place? Who needs to hear that God has purified all sin and removed all guilt from anyone who will come? Who is going to be my messenger? And Isaiah said, here I am. Here I am. You can have it all. You can have it all. Here I am. Here I am. I'll go. I'll be the one to tell these people. After seeing you, nothing is a sacrifice 
Nothing would be too big of an ask, God, considering how awesome you are and how good and, and great you have shown yourself to be in my life. You want me to tell people about you? Easy. You want me to serve? No sweat. You want me to give? Okay. I don't care what it is. I'll do anything because I see you clearly and I see myself and I see how much you love me. Here I am. When I prayed a moment ago that we would be motivated by this truth, God's holiness and our separation from him, but his mercy and our reuniting with him based only on the work of Jesus, that changes how you live day to day. So ultimately, this song and this passage are a reminder. They're a reminder that we make ourselves available to God because God is all made himself available to us.